We talk a lot about the different aspects of healthcare on this show, like the intersection of technology and healthcare and policy proposals like Medicare for All. But at the end of the day, nothing is more important than the patient and making sure that they have a voice in improving healthcare. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Next Big Thing in Health, a podcast from America's health insurance plans. This episode of The Next Big Thing in Health is brought to you by Accenture, helping health insurers transform with intelligent automation. What does it mean to be an intelligent payer? To find out how your organization can apply artificial intelligence to achieve meaningful change, visit Accenture.com backslash AHIP and follow hashtag intelligent payer on Twitter and LinkedIn. Also, be sure to visit Accenture.com backslash AHIP to download the free Intelligent Payer Survival Guide. Our guest today is Alan Balch, CEO of the Patient Advocate Foundation. Alan has nearly 15 years of executive leadership in the nonprofit sector with an emphasis on consensus building and collaboration, and he's led numerous federal advocacy efforts at the legislative and regulatory levels. Prior to his time with the Patient Advocate Foundation, Alan served as vice president of the Preventative Health Partnership, a national health promotion collaboration between the American Cancer Society, American Diabetes Association and the American Heart Association. Alan, thanks so much for being with us. Well, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Yeah, appreciate it. Well, so we just heard a little bit about your career journey. What what led you to this role now as a Patient Advocate Foundation CEO? Wow. So going way back, I was trained academically as a political economist, and my big area of interest was really in consumer theory. And how do you actually create social utility or public good, if you will, uh, while through the the forces of individuals acting within their own self-interest, the sort of classic invisible hand sort of theory. Uh, Or another way of putting it is how do you actually use free market forces to create uh, social change and public good? Um, So take all that, what all that uh, means, and then fast forward to my career. I was actually going into environmental policy. Uh, and and my I was finishing up my dissertation. It was about 600 pages long. It was out for review. Uh, I ended up taking care of my grandmother, who was dying of, of advanced colorectal cancer at the same time that my 14-year-old cousin, with whom, I, with whom I was very close, was also dying of a brain tumor. So my whole family has been is, is in healthcare for the most part, extended family, immediate family, et cetera. And I had always swore I wouldn't do healthcare. I would be in public health in a different way, sort of through the environmental lens. But um, that experience of taking care of my grandmother and then seeing her die within three months of my cousin uh, and my dissertation was still out for review, I wanted to give back. So I actually found a, a nonprofit here in D.C. that was very involved in research advocacy, and I started off volunteering, and that turned into, it was very, it was literally two people. Um, so that turned into, hey, would you want to run this thing? Uh, um, so I took that opportunity as my first uh, professional job here in D.C., and that was uh, with Friends of Cancer Research. Um, and then went to work from there in the prevention space with Heart Association, Cancer Society, and Diabetes Association, and ultimately uh, wound up with the Patient Advocate Foundation as the CEO, in part because, I guess, through my uh, career trajectory working in the research advocacy space and the prevention space, I think the one thing that I really lacked was you know feeling that immediate um, gratification, if you will, knowing that what I was doing was having an immediate impact on the lives of people. 
Um, and so Patient Advocate Foundation, I'm sure we'll talk a little bit about it actually. That's what we do. Right, we, right. we are essentially an emergency room for patients that are facing a social determinant of health issue or an access issue or a health, equal, health inequity issue in their immediate sphere that is impacting their ability to access or afford their care. Um, so, so you're seeing this firsthand when you deal with these patients, getting that, that uh, reward immediately because you're able to help these patients. Talking about the patient voice, and that's really what it comes down to for you guys. Um, what role does the patient voice play in improving healthcare? What have you learned from your position? Yeah, so we uh, sort of the basis of that, and it goes back to that sort of that consumer theory I started with for me personally and academically. I think thinking of it at the most micro level, at the individual level, I think the the patient has a role to play in helping to be good fiscal stewards and social stewards of the care they're receiving. And we've actually learned from our patients that they want to play that role. We've done a, a good job, I think, of, of making sure that patients are paying a good portion out of pocket for their own healthcare expenses and their premiums and their out-of-pocket expenses. What we haven't done commensurately with that is actually help them and help them be empowered to be informed consumers so they too can help make good decisions about their care and make sure that their care aligns fiscally with what they think is appropriate, but also, and even more important than that from a consumer theory perspective, is making sure that the care they're receiving aligns with their their goals and their preferences and their values. Um, so I think that's the role that the patient voice can play in the, at the individual level. And then you can just sort of translate that up to different levels. You know, So at a mac macro level, uh, that has implications too in terms of the patient voice being involved in helping to design health systems and deliveries of care model and payment models. Um, and what do you find among your patients? Is it is it too confusing or they don't have the time or what what do you see? I think it's a fun there's a fundamental disconnect. I think patients don't understand the and we haven't really created a space for them to bring their what they are experts in inherently and automatically to the table, which is what's important to them, what's going on in their lives, um, what are they able to tolerate um, financially from a logistics perspective, and then how do you align evidence-based care options against what's important to patients and what's the reality of their lived experience. So I think part of it is that disconnect between you know a really complicated healthcare system that's so focused on the treatment and the clinical aspect of care, and, and patients sort of come into this environment feeling like they've got to match that intellectual intensity, that intellectual knowledge, and they have to become the momcologist. They have to understand that clinical, the science behind it, and the journey behind it clinically, which is important. Mm -hmm. But there's sort of this devaluation of what they already bring to the table that is really of significance, which is who they are as people, you know, their lives and what's important to them. Speaking their language. Speaking their language. And I think that's the magic of if we can sort of align those two things, and this again comes back to basic consumer theory, if you can actually empower patients to understand how their individual preferences and their goals can be used to help align care and, and not necessarily treatment. I think, you know, sure. we focus on treatment. We think about care because care may be no treatment. Care may be supportive care, right? So, treat, you know, care isn't always giving you, you know, interventions, surgery, right? I mean, it may be that, especially for complicated diseases. Of course, it's going to be included in that. But I think aligning, you know, what's figuring out what's important to patients and what's, what their goals are. Uh, and what they're able to do um, logistically and financially, aligning that with available options for care and really maximizing the, the opportunity to get the right care to the right patient at the right time. And, and I know you've helped more than a million patients in your existence. What are the common 
concerns that patients bring to you? Yeah, so at a, at a really fundamental sort of ugly underside of the health system belly level, it is the, the, the day-to-day things. Uh, we think of them sometimes as the social determinants of health, maybe another way to look at them, or inequities in, in the individual healthcare journey. Uh, most of these are low-income patients. Um, so the average patient that we help has an income of about $28,000, $25,000 a year. They come from small households. They're dealing uh, uh, primarily with really complicated, life-threatening, and debilitating uh, diseases like cancer, HIV, AIDS, hepatitis. Um, and what they're being exposed and the things they come to us for are things like uh, I can't afford my ch- most patients journey the, the problem that they're coming to us starts with I can't afford X mm-hmm. fill in the blank the most common thing is transportation after that it's utilities you know housing basic cost of living things and what's happening in patients lives is that especially those who have a really life-threatening disease they're diverting resources to pay for their care they need their medication, they need their surgery, they need to pay, you know, they've got to continue to have their insurance, they have to pay their out-of-pocket expenses, um, so they're d- paying for those things so they can continue to get access to care, and what they're sacrificing is paying their day-to-day living expenses. So the first thing they, they, at least what we understand from their journey, and we've done a lot of survey work in this space with our patients, is for the most part what they start foregoing is their their utility bills, their car payments, their rent payments, their groceries. Their kids' um, college funds. All those things start to fall by the wayside as they're diverting resources to pay for um, essential care that they need so that they can survive, they can have a better quality of life. And um, the vicious cycle is yeah. that stuff makes you sick. That, yeah, so, yeah, <laughs> stressful. So, well, it does. It creates stress for them, but it also create, it makes it difficult for them to, um, to pursue, you know, to have a high quality of life and to have a normal life uh, in their day-to-day lived experience. So that's... And, and that's no one's fault. I mean, that's it's not just, and we sort of have this view that no one's purposely designing the system this way. I mean, no one set out to create the world's most complicated and expensive healthcare system. It's just the reality of what we have. Um, but there is certainly a large uh, segment of the patient population who really is not prepared for, does not know how to deal with the the implications of the expense and the complications of the system as it interrupts their day-to-day life. And even fundamental things like transportation um, become pretty significant expenses for patients and logistical barriers to overcome. How has the role of patient advocates, how has that evolved? Hmm. I, I can maybe speak from how my role has evolved. And I think uh-huh. it's sort of, pat, you know, since I've been in patient advocacy for 15 years now, I, I, I think there's some of this evolution of my own corresponds with sort of some of the evolution in the field, although I will say there's a lot of people that, that have always been where I am now in this area of really thinking about how to help patients uh, directly through the day-to-day minutia of their health inequities. But uh, f- I, I, th- I think there was a lot of emphasis initially around, and there still is, around research advocacy, really making sure that we're funding appropriate research, we're advancing the scientific activity around clinical trial design and clinical trial engagement. I think uh, as as more and more of the financial burden of of the health system was um, was put onto the shoulders of patients, I think emerged this sort of access and affordability agenda around really figuring out you know how can patients afford uh, their out of pocket costs and how do we help manage that sort of speaks you know obviously the part d design have a significant you know the done at whole and out-of-pocket exposure for patients um so you know copay assistance was a means by which to help really low-income and needy patients uh, overcome those or uh, help them meet those financial obligations Mm -hmm. Um, i think where it's progressed to now beyond that is uh, at least for us and i think for a lot of 
advocates is into this value and quality realm. Like, how do we actually create a healthcare system that really does deliver quality and value? So and it's bigger picture. I think so. At mm -hmm. least it is for us. I mean, mm -hmm. our agenda, obviously, access and affordability is important. Um, but what we're really focusing on is how do you actually create what we call a person-centered healthcare system, a healthcare system that really can deliver uh, efficiently and effectively value and quality for, for patients and their family members. So you're really identifying opportunities for potential improvement and yep. evolution of the healthcare system through the work that you're doing. What are some of those opportunities that have come up? Yeah, so for us, we define our agenda really in this, uh, hopefully I can tie it together in a less complicated way, but really there's five elements of it and we feel those need to be put together in a systematic way to d deliver what we call a, a person-centered uh, delivery care model, but essentially uh, the, sort of the three main elements are shared decision-making, um, goal concordant care planning, and then quality measurement. And all of those are activities in which you're endeavoring to uh, align at least a portion of the, of the care that's received, the planning for it, and then the way it's measured with what's important to patients and their goals and their preferences. Um, so one example may be, you know, we know from our patients, they really want to stay out of the emergency room and they really want to avoid inpatient hospital stays. That also happens to be uh, a big motivation and a big win for everyone in the system. It saves money, it saves time, it saves resources. So that's a place where there's, I think, good alignment between a goal of care that patients have and a preference that they have. And how do you make sure and engineer their care plan and their treatment choices to, to maximize uh, or minimize, rather, the likelihood that they're going to end up in the emergency room or in an inpatient hospital stay, for example. So I think that's just one example to sort of bring it down to a micro level of how you can actually align, you know, what's important to patients and what they would like to see out of their care with some things that I know the system has identified as important wins to, to reduce the cost. Uh, but at the end of the day, it's uh, our agenda really is about how do you use shared decision-making, care planning, quality measurement as a way to put uh, consumers in a position where they can express their individual preferences in the marketplace of healthcare and make sure that the care they're receiving is aligned with their goals, both financially from a quality of life experience and also from a lived experience. The sort of the two overarching uh, activities, if you will, that really help pull those things together are decision support tools. So there's a role that technology can play. Uh, and other types of tools and interfaces that can play in helping to facilitate that shared decision-making and care planning process. So it doesn't have to be a really high transaction cost. A very, I mean, part of it does. Um, but I think there's a significant role that tools, uh, online tools, you know, um, you know, uh, mobile media, um, you know, the, the technology around us can really help prepare patients and their care team for that journey of shared decision-making and care planning. Um, but at the end of the day, you're still going to have, a, even if you've got this ideal system of being able to deliver decision-making and care planning, quality measurement, a portion of which aligns or is based on what patients express as their preferences, preferences and goals for their care, you're still going to have a really expensive and complicated healthcare system. So we feel like a navigation is a pretty critical component to the future of the U.S. healthcare system to really help patients who need that uh, that that social support service to address their social determinants of health, to address their health inequities, to help them navigate through those complicated pitfalls of the cost and the barriers associated with their care, uh, to help them be able to be the, the successful in their 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 journey uh, through the the care that they've selected and planned with their care team. Are there other issues beyond those that you're really focused on in in the evolution of healthcare that you believe need to be addressed? 
I mean, I think tied to that is this idea. I mean, you know, from a from a consumer perspective, um, you know, market behavior really starts and ends with information, right? So the access to information and be able to use that, understand it, and be able to use that as part of expressing preferences and making decisions and how you spend your dollars in the marketplace. So I think the tied to all this is this idea of transparency. How do we give consumers, patients, caregivers better information about um, what the implications are financially and from a quality of living, you know, from a clinical benefit, from a side effect, from a burden perspective, how do we give them information they can use to help them make the best choice for them, uh, the most personalized choice for them? So I think there's this issue of how do we give patients, I mean, cost is, is sort of the big uh, the big uh, issue right now is how do we, and our patients tell us they want cost information. They want to know, not just the price, they want to know what the cost of things are going to be, um, you know, uh, to them personally, but also to their family, to the healthcare system, et cetera. So how do you actually, uh, that's something I know people have toyed with, and we have some proposals out uh, for, for comment about how to do that. And, and we're not necessarily saying there's a right or, you know, we haven't picked the right exact way to do that, but I do think there is this, this need to provide better information and put it in the hands of consumers um, sure. as a starting point. And how successful have you been in some changing policy based on from where you come from? You know, yeah. with that information, yeah. um, is that is that a big effort that you're undertaking? So our approach to policy now is more focused on broader health system transformation. So not to say that the policy work that's done, say in D.C. or the state capital level, it's it is important, um, but it's also really difficult <laughs> to come by and our, our framers designed a system quite successfully um, to, to actually make it really hard to get anything done, um, which is a good thing, I think, generally speaking. Um, but um, the, the opportunity to really transform the healthcare system and really the, a lot of the, the, the policy minutia that affects the day-to-day -day lived experience of patients is actually made within the health systems that are serving them. It's made within the plan, you know, by the health plans that are helping to make sure that they can provide affordable healthcare coverage for their beneficiaries. It's made by the vendors who are creating these tools, you know, whether it's the, the electronic medical record or whether it's a pathway tool, they're, they're, they're making decisions. We don't necessarily think about them as policy, but the end, you know, as a political economist, we would think about them sure. as policy because they are decisions that are made that impact the way a resource is used and distributed within an economic and a social system. Um, so that's where really we're focused on how do you not just change policy at the sort of regulatory or legislative level, but actually how do you create policy that transform at the health system level that really does create mm -hmm. the transformation of healthcare in the way that we've described it here around shared decision-making, care planning, and, and quality measurement, all of which that is based on what matters to patients. Yeah. So then let me ask you this. In, in looking at today's healthcare system, is there one thing that you could say that you're most optimistic about? Mm, most optimistic about? I think there's this renewed, I mean, sort of what's old is new again. I think there's this really renewed emphasis on shared decision making. Certainly not a new concept. It sort of was born out of the informed consent, I don't want to say movement, but maybe that's the right way to, to approach it. But I think what, what we've tried to do and many other groups have tried to do is really think about shared decision-making not as a process for just informed consent, but as a process for really facilitating that communication between the patient, their caregivers, their family, and the care team around what's important to them as a way to bridge that gap between you know what's important to the patients and the knowledge they have about who they are and what's important to them and that scientific knowledge and the medical and clinical knowledge that the care team has, you know, aligning those two things 
in the context of what's important to the patient, I think is uh, there's a real opportunity to do that. And shared decision-making is the crucible in which that transaction can be shaped and molded to make sure that whatever care is decided upon um, is reflective of what is important to the patient and what aligns with their preferences and goals, you know, within certain constraints, right? Sure. Fiscal constraints, evidence-based constraints. Obviously, the patient's not the only one paying for the care. So there's a social contract implied here because uh, their employer's paying for the care, that plan is paying for the care. So others have a voice in, you know, what's available and what options to pursue. Um, but at the end of the day, I think within those constraints, the, the patient voice and the caregiver voice should have a role to play in helping to determine what are the appropriate options for care that best aligns with, with their personal preferences and goals? Absolutely. And maybe you just answered this question, but at the end of each uh, uh, segment, we'd like to ask our guests, what is the next big thing in health? Because this is you know, what, the, what the show is called. Yeah. So in your opinion, based on where you are, what yeah. is the next big thing in health? Is it that patient, uh, that shared information? Well, I'll answer it two ways. I think there's a real practical next big thing, and I think it is. I think the next big thing, from a practical perspective, again, getting back to the what's old is new again, is navigation. I think there's a lot of attention being played to social determinants of health, and I think as we begin to understand the dimensions of that, whether it's housing, food insecurity, transportation, um, you know, discrimination, uh, the way to mitigate that in the healthcare setting is often found outside of the four walls of the healthcare system. Um, so really you create this process of trying to figure out how do you, and this is what we do uh, at Patient Advocate Foundation through our case management, is how do you find resources out in the world <laughs> that can help patients uh, overcome these, uh, these health inequities that are impacting their ability to stay on care, afford care, or access care. So I think that's, uh, you know, in most complicated consumer markets, um, like real estate, <laughs> like, uh, you know, climbing a mountain, there is a navigator who plays a role in assisting, take the law, for example, a lawyer is essentially a navigator through the, the, the complications of the legal environment. I think we need uh, a role like that in the healthcare system to help patients especially low-income patients and those that are disenfranchised um, and vulnerable, helping them navigate the, that, those, the things we know about the lived experience of care that seem to fall, that right now are sort of treated as externalities mm -hmm. in the healthcare system. And we're not suggesting that it's the healthcare system's responsibility to solve housing, um, but there is an acute and short-term role that can be played in identifying who those individuals are who are struggling with something like sure. that and figuring out a way to help them navigate to resources that can um, help them address those problems. So that's a real practical one. Yeah. From a big picture perspective, you know, from sort of ideally, we'd like the next big thing to be what we call person-centered care pathways. Mm -hmm. So actually figuring out and working through that concept of a decision support tool like a pathway and actually design a systematic and standardized approach to person-centered care again, comprised of shared decision-making, care planning, and quality measurement that aligns with what matters to patients. I actually think you can use that pathway concept to develop a care model mm -hmm. that has those three components um, and actually uh, implement it in the clinical healthcare system uh, to see, do you get better outcomes? Do you get better patient satisfaction? Do you get better adherence? When you really take the time and effort it takes to engage patients meaningfully in the decisions about what care they're going to receive and the yeah. planning for that care, and then ultimately the measurement of that care, it's a different way of thinking about patient empowerment and patient engagement um, where there actually, there's actually a system of care that's designed around engineering that type of engagement interaction 
of the patient, their caregiver, you know, from beginning to end. Uh, yeah, fascinating. Well, yeah. good good conversation. I really appreciate your enlightening us on uh, not only what Patient Advocate Foundation does, but just the the changes. And you know, you really have a, an interesting perspective. I think that uh, that we haven't had on the show yet. So well, no, I appreciate you having me. Thank you. Thank so you, much. Alan Balch, uh, CEO of Patient Advocate Foundation. Thanks so much. Thank you. Quick reminder that this episode of The Next Big Thing in Health is brought to you by Accenture, helping health insurers transform with intelligent automation. Did you know that artificial intelligence solutions can unlock billions of dollars in value for payers? To learn which six capability areas can generate the most value from AI, visit Accenture.com backslash AHIP to see the latest research from Accenture and to download the free intelligent payer survival guide. So now I want to bring in my co-host, Matt Isles, president and CEO of AHIP, to talk about the conversation we just had with Alan. And Matt, you heard us talking about um, the empowered patient, and that's really a focus of, uh, of Alan's through the Patient Advocate Foundation. How do we make sure that the patient voice always plays a part in improving healthcare, in your opinion, and why is that so important? Alan was very eloquent about he was how he was talking about the patient experience and how do we make sure that we hear patients. We really want to understand what it is they're experiencing, how they are receiving their care, and what's important to them. And I know that health insurance providers are spending a lot more time and energy and effort to make sure that they're meeting patients and consumers where they are. Because when we meet patients where they are, we can understand what's important. We can direct them to the care that is appropriate for them, uh, have them understand uh, cost and affordability, and also quality, which is critically important. Uh, because if we're just focusing on on cost and not on quality and not on the experience of the patient, we're, we're not really thinking about the whole person. Mm -hmm. So how, um, and you've been in this business obviously for a very long time, how have you seen patient advocacy, uh, patient um, advocacy and, and patients using their own voice, how has that evolved in the years that you've been in the business? It has really taken off over the past decade or so, I'll say, in terms of patients wanting to be heard. There are various associations and groups uh, some are very patient-specific to uh, disease conditions. Some might be more general patient organizations, but really making sure that their voice is heard. Uh, again, patients want to be met where they are. They want to be heard. They want to be understood um, and have someone empathize with what they're going through so that they can really make the best decisions. One area in particular that I've seen an explosion uh, over the past couple of years is understanding the social uh, factors that influence health, the so-called social determinants of health, um, and understanding the challenges about transportation or nutrition. And we heard Alan talk about some of those challenges um, and how important they are, especially for individuals who might have uh, lower incomes or other challenges that they're facing. And I think the social determinants issue uh, will just continue to be at the forefront of our conversations about how do we address the true patient experience and improve it. 
And you think patients are feeling more empowered to, to speak up these days? For, for what reason? I think it's uh, multifaceted. I think, yes, one, patients do feel more empowered to speak up. They want to be heard. Uh, there are lots of different channels out there in order to be heard, uh, different communications. I also think health insurance providers and uh, physicians and others are really recognizing that they want to, again, meet patients where they are and make sure that their needs are met and understood and what challenges are they facing. So they're asking barriers. the right questions. They're asking the questions and they're recognizing that they should put together packages of services to help patients uh, accomplish their best health. Uh, again, whether it be around transportation, could be housing, could be nutrition, it could be other challenges that they're facing. Because we don't understand the whole person, we're not going to get the best health outcome. Mm -hmm. So health insurance providers are you know, help encouraging um, patients to, to speak up and, and providers uh, are, are you know, helping them ask the right questions. What can providers do to help insurance providers um, get patients the information they need to make those correct decisions, those right decisions for them. Yeah, again, I don't know that there's any one single channel or way to deliver that information to patients. It really needs to be sort of a suite of services that you offer and make available. Again, uh, under the notion of meeting consumers and patients where they are, not everyone is going to consume information in the same way. So for some individuals, it might be a call center uh, and providing them with a person that they can speak to. For others, it might be a, a case manager, again, to help them sort of navigate the system. For others, it might be better access and understanding that there are online tools that are available to them uh, in order to get more information and get an understanding about what their options are and what costs are and what quality are. So I don't know that there's a single way to do it. You, again, need to meet the patient where they are and understand what's the most effective way that they're going to consume information and then use that information to to their benefit. Yeah, is, is it hard to determine that right channel to, to get that information to I, them? I think it, it, um, it can be challenging and that's why you want to start with sort of a you know multiple options. And uh, you know over time, I think we're learning uh, how people uh, really want to experience healthcare and and what's the most effective way. And for a younger population, it might lead to you know one type of channel of information. For an older population, who might uh, want to consume it in a in a different way. And I think it's understanding and segmenting. Uh, individuals and also being very culturally sensitive about how people uh, consume information uh, and that they can actually understand it. We all know how complicated and complex healthcare information is. If, for example, English is your second language, it's even more complex. So really being culturally sensitive to how information is being delivered and received. So Alan talked a lot about transparency. Um, I want to ask you, what, what does that mean to you, and how does transparency empower a patient? Right. Uh, to health insurance providers, transparency means making sure that patients and consumers have actionable information that is specific to their own individual circumstances so that they can make the best health care decisions with their families and with their health care providers. Uh, and making sure that people understand what their choices are, what their options are, and again, that it's very tailored and personal. 
uh, giving general information to someone that may or may not be applicable to their uh, unique circumstances isn't going to be very helpful to them. So really, again, we want information transparency to help people make decisions that's specific to their own circumstances. So what transparency tools are available these days to patients? Right. There are myriad uh uh, transparency tools that are available, and uh, almost all health insurance providers have some type of online tools that are available to them. There are great examples out there, for, for example, from uh, Blue Cross Blue Shield of Louisiana. They have a smart shopper program that's been in effect for, for many years. Cigna has Cigna's One Guide um, out there to help people understand um, how to choose their benefits and uh, various tools and applications. Uh, we've seen it from uh, Priority Health. They have a cost estimator that was launched several years ago to help Medicare Advantage members access real-time cost information on prescription drugs and others. There's, there's examples from across the industry uh, about how these tools are out there. Now, what we need to do is to make sure that patients and consumers know, know that they're available and that they actually use them. That's one of our biggest problems right now is that the use of these tools is woefully low. Um, it's in the single digits uh, by way of percentages. Uh, and some of it is just people don't know that they're available and we need to do a better job of educating individuals and making sure that, for example, when they come on board to their health plan um, at a new benefit year, that they know that those tools are out there and, and really reinforcing them, whether it be when they receive a um, uh, an explanation of benefits statement or other things that they can go online and not just find out about what they received in paper format perhaps, but that there are other tools available to them to get to the best information so that they can make this kind of decision. And wouldn't you say it's so important to simplify it all too? Because a lot of these patients don't probably know what they're reading. Simplification, um, being a very consumer-oriented in your language um, and making sure that we're not using jargon. Now, I will say that there are some regulatory barriers, some policy barriers and issues uh, and requirements around some of these communications. Um, that said, we do have opportunities to provide clear, consumer-friendly uh, information and communications in addition to what might be required. But it's important for us to understand that there are certain regulatory requirements currently that we probably need to look at in order to make sure that we can provide simplified, actionable information to consumers uh, that they really understand. Mm -hmm. Matt Isles, as always, you have great insight. Appreciate it. Thanks so much. This episode of The Next Big Thing in Health has been brought to you by Accenture, helping health insurers transform with intelligent automation. Visit Accenture.com backslash AHIP to download the free Intelligent Payer Survival Guide. To find out the top three business areas where payers can generate near-term value from artificial intelligence, visit Accenture.com backslash AHIP to see the latest research from Accenture. And be sure to follow hashtag Intelligent Payer on Twitter and LinkedIn. Remember to subscribe to The Next Big Thing in Health on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you liked what you heard, tell a friend and leave us a rating and a review. Thanks for tuning in.